Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. All right, um, I'll begin with the Bible reading then. So the first one we're reading is Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. So please uh, bring it up. You know. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be lost in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For were two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. The second uh, reading is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 11. So again, please pull that up. It will be page 793. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from these whose way of life is scorned by the church? I say this to, this to shame you. It is possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers. But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourself cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Thanks, Nick. G'day, how you doing? If you have your Bibles open, um, keep your Bibles open. It's uh, in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, welcome to Siddalat North Adelaide. My name's Andrew Tran, one of the elder candidates here. It's, if you haven't met me, I'd love to meet you in person, have a chat out the back. Um, yeah, if you don't know me, um, I've been coming here well, for a couple of years now, since pretty much the start, I think like four years, well, actually four year birthday, right? So there you go. Um, if you don't know me, um, I'm engaged to a girl named Delphine. Um, she's not here, she's at another church. Um, if you haven't seen her, uh, I would have a photo here, but I forgot to put it in the PowerPoint. But I assure you, she does actually exist. She actually does exist. Uh, we've been engaged for like nine months now, and uh, we're going through this uh, like pre-marriage counselling. And um, I mean, she, if she knew I was talking about this, she would hate me. So please don't talk. So please don't tell her. I really don't want to talk about it in marriage counselling with her. It's not going to be good. Um, but yeah, a little bit about us. We're we're actually like really really different people. Uh, super different. Um, uh, and if you look at our Myers-Briggs, I'm an ESFJ, she is an INFP, if you know what that means, that pretty much means that like, we're like this, right? Uh, I'm, for Enneagram-wise, I'm an achiever, she is a helper. Um, she, I'm loud, she's not. She's tactful, I'm 
less tactful, put it that way. Um, but you know, one of the things I love about uh, Delphine and well, just about us is that um, we're on the same team. Uh, I, I don't know. This is like I don't know if I'm just gushing right now, but I, I, I love that about us right now. Um, we're on the same team. We're for each other. And um, but despite you know being, us being on the same team, um, we do have our points of friction. Uh, despite um, uh, being on the same team, we do have conflicts, we, and that's because of our flaws. We're just flawed people, and sometimes that can be kind of hard. And despite how naturally we get along with each other, um, we do have conflicts, and despite our love, uh, we, need, we have a need to work things out sometimes. Um, so it's no surprise that when you come into a community like a church, um, that uh, in a place where you're commanded to love each other, that you, the conflict arises. Especially, you know, like, we don't all naturally get along with each other, right? Um, if you've been a Christian for any sort of period of time, and you've been part of this church or any church, really, uh, since we're all human, broken human beings, conflict shouldn't be surprising. If anything, it should be expected, right? Now, conflict isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it depends on what it's about. But despite this reason for conflict in, ch- uh, despite there's a reason for conflict in church, um, the way we deal with conflict is actually really, really important because it actually reveals something about who we are, which is what our text in First Corinthians six is on about this morning. Uh, if you've been following along at home with us for the last seven or so weeks, uh, we've been follow- we've been working our way through the book of First Corinthians. And a quick recap: First Corinthians is a Paul, a Paul written no, as it was a written letter written by Paul uh, to the uh, Corinthian church. As Jack would say, Corinth was a place that was successful, that was spiritual, that was sex obsessed. Um, Corinth was a place that was thriving economically, was a culture of many cultures and many religions. But the problem with the Corinthian church here was was their lack of maturity in faith. Instead of looking like a church that was separate from the world, it looked very much like the culture around it. And you see, the church was plagued by many issues, one of which we were covering this morning. Throughout 1 Corinthians, you hear... Paul's concern about their disunity in faith, and it's not that these, trigger, that these trivial arguments were the point of concern. No, 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 no. That, that wasn't the point of concern. The concern here was uh, Paul was concerned about the disunity about how um, the conflict was being handled because it revealed something about them and it looked bad to the culture around them. So as we go through this particular section of 1 Corinthians, Paul does three things in this letter. If you're note-taking, these are the three things that Paul does in this letter. Firstly, he reminds them of their roles as saints. He then shows them that holiness affects evangelism. And thirdly, he then calls them to know whose they are. Those are the three things that Paul does. So as we open up God's words, let's pray together and see what God has for us, eh? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is truth, that your words bring life, that they point to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Heavenly Father, we pray that you unstick our deaf ears, open our eyes to your reality, break our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh, ready and receptive to your word. Have your way with us, Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray this morning personally for me that you humble me this morning as you speak. 
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right. Let's go through 1 Corinthians. The first one says this. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Now, when you read this, you read, do you dare? Already, that's a big indicator that something's gone wrong. Something has happened to the church where it shouldn't have been happening. When I think of the word dare, I think of myself as a school kid when the teacher tells you, how dare you do that, Tran? And they actually did call me Tran. <laughs> and that would just feel, that would feel, and I was like a goody two-shoes at school, and whenever that happened, I was like, man, this is, this is, there's, there's some gravity here. And this is the same thing with the Corinthian church. They were not in a good spot. They dared to take their conflicts to people outside of the church. And this is all the more bothersome for Paul because we know that in the secular courts of the Greco-Roman time, they're infamously known for corruption and favoring those with higher social status. Hence why he rhetorically asks them why they dare to take it to the ungodly. It's interesting to note that in our first reading that Nick had read for us today in Matthew 18, that Jesus actually gives us instruction to how to deal with conflict in church. We should handle it in-house. We need to be careful in how we do it. We need to prive, uh, firstly approach someone one-on-one, and then if that doesn't work, you bring two or three others and, as a witness, and then if that doesn't work, you bring it to the church. And if you, when you, that happens, you'd expect a fair verdict, like a fair consensus, right? Which brings me to my first point here, that Paul reminds them of their roles as saints. In verse 2 to 3, it says this, Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? It's important to note here that the cases that were being disputed were actually trivial. It's not exactly clear from, what the, te- from the text that what those cases were, but it doesn't mean that it, was probably, it probably wasn't cases of like rape or murder or any serious criminal activity. It's rather referring to minor matters. But regardless, Paul thought here that these matters should have been handled in the church, but they weren't being handled. So instead, Paul reminds them as Christ's body of what they will be doing on the judgment day. They will be judging more than just trivial cases. In fact, verse 2 tells us that the Lord will, Lord's people will judge the world on the final day, which is true. In union with Christ, so think about this, in the, in, on the final day, we get to sit on the throne with Jesus, ruling and reigning over everything, over the 12 tribes of Israel, over angels, over the entire world. That's what we have in him. And it's crazy to think that God's people are meant to be doing these, these things at the end of the days, ruling and reigning over all things. Yet in the Corinthian church, they couldn't even sort out minor issues. You can just hear Paul screeching to the, to the scribe when he was writing this down. Oh, come on, guys. You're made for so much more than this. You ought to be handling this on your own. And if one of the roles of Christians at the end of the days is to rule over judge, uh, judge over angels, you should surely you'd be able to judge over minor things. But the Corinthians didn't. 
And to make things worse, they didn't just ignore the trivial things. They forsook their responsibilities as God's people. And they took these disputes to people who didn't even value the same thing God did. You see that in verse 4, it says this. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? Paul does not mince his words here. He doesn't mince his words here when he talks about the courts that the Corinthians were appealing to. He doesn't say that these people of way of life is to be scorned in the church just, just for shock value. He doesn't just do that. He doesn't say it just to, con- to, to, con- to condescend unbelievers that, that you know, they're worse than we are. No, he's not saying that at all. What, what rather Paul is saying here, he's making it crystal clear that God does not approve of the way these people were running their life, but yet the church was running to them. The church was appealing to people and to systems that were not in line with the gospel. Now, all of this raises questions about how we handle conflict at church. As I said, conflict happens at church. It just, it just does. When you put sinful people together, it's, there's going to be conflict. If you're looking for a church and you think, I'm looking for a church, there's no conflict there. I've got bad news for you. There ain't no church like that. <laughs> but we live in a fallen world. And Jesus even anticipated conflict in the church, and he's given instructions on how to deal with it. But God, through his word, has given us mechanisms to ensure that dealing of conflict will result in a fair verdict. But having said this, not all matters need to be handled by the church. Something shouldn't be. Romans 13 uh, tells us, uh, in Romans 13, Paul shows that God has given us civil government and authorities for the protection and good of all people. So when it comes to really serious matters of criminal activity, of murder, physical, sexual, emotional abuse, domestic violence, child abuse, these things must be handled by the authorities. Now, I know this text has been used by churches in throughout Christian history that, no. The church is the arbiter of all authority. But I need to say this out front. If this is you, if this is you who are experiencing physical, sexual, emotional abuse, domestic violence, child abuse, any of that, you don't need to suffer under the thumb of your oppressor. If anything, you need to get out of that. If you need help with that, I contact myself, Jacko, Sam, any of the elders, and we will get you the right help. Aside from that, nevertheless, like the Corinthians, though, we need to know how to address conflict in the church. And when the church acts like it's supposed to, it's actually a safe place when you think about it. If everyone in the church has been saved, we are all gaining the mind of Christ. And if we are to confront a brother or sister who has sinned against us, we should expect a fair verdict. As Christians, as saints, when the time comes to it, it is our role, all of us, to act fairly, to act justly, and to act in a godly manner. That is our role as saints. It's ironic, though, that in Paul in verse 1, he calls the people of the world ungodly. But it ends up that the Corinthian church was acting just that, ungodly. They had forgotten their roles as saints. What was their motivation for doing so? Well, you get a hint of that in verse 5. It says this. I say this to you, 
to shame you. I say this to shame you. It is possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers. The funny thing throughout the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians is that you hear time and time again that the Corinthians were boasting, we are wise, we're clever, we're smart. We know what we're talking about because we follow this particular leader. And Paul is just calling them out on their so-called claims of wisdom. If you're so wise, then sort out these disputes. Unless that is, you know, maybe there isn't actually a, a wise man among you. You see, the, Christian, the, Corinthians, the Corinthian church was so blinded to their pride and their arrogance that they didn't even realize that it reflected in how they handled disputes. And this follows into our second point that Paul is making here in the text. It's that holiness affects evangelism. Verses 6 to 8 read this. But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of believers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you, among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. The thing that stands out to me in this passage, this section here, is this language of family. As Christians, when we get saved, we get adopted into God's family. Yes, you become a child of God. But that makes your fellow Christians your brothers and your sisters, your spiritual family. When you join the family that's you join a family that's bonded together, not by human blood, but by the thicker, more binding blood, the blood of Jesus. Paul is very deliberate in his language of taking brothers out to court and cheating and doing wrong to brothers and sisters. It just sounds wrong. We would, have, we would have been mortified if we were the original readers of this. Think about this. You don't sue family. And that's the seriousness of what they were doing. These people proudly claimed to be people of Jesus, and yet Jesus' teaching stands in stark contrast to their behavior, especially when you consider texts like John 13, 34 to 35. It says this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus makes it clear that people will know Christians by how they love their brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the ways that Christians make Jesus look, more, look better, more attractive, more lovely is how we love each other. But that's not what's going on here in the Corinthian church. By taking their brother to court, they're putting on full display the kind of quote-unquote love that they had for them, which is really not love at all. This is not a great poster for Christianity. This is what, means, this is what Paul means by verse 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. When these believers went out to a lawsuit against their fellow believers, they had already lost the greater battle. And that battle was for the souls of those who don't know Jesus. That's why Paul goes on to say, why not be wronged? Why not be cheated? Especially if it's trivial things. Why not use the ethic of turning the other cheek or absorbing the offense? Surely forgiveness for trivial things shows that Christianity has the power to change lives, right? 
Surely you can forgive a family member so that outsiders can see that and see that you love them and that you love them because Jesus has loved you. By taking their fellow Christians to court for trivial matters, they were bringing disrepute to the church and ultimately to the name of Jesus. This is why holiness matters. This is why sanctification matters. This is why changing and growing into the image of Christ matters. Christians are to be in the world, but not of it. Christians are not meant to look like the world, but they're meant to look like Jesus. If Christians are the same as the world, people will look at us and consider, not even consider Christianity. Why should I become a Christian if they're just like me? Brothers and sisters, the way we live and the way we treat each other represents to the world how God has treated us. We love because he first loved us. Now, I don't think in Australia that we're plagued by litigation in the church. Um, I don't think we're plagued by that at all. But I do think that in Christ- Christians today, uh, we are tempted by, to throw our Christ- fellow Christians under the bus, especially in our age of social media. Um, even if it's not targeted towards certain people, like specific people, but I see all the time Christians taking pot shots at other Christians or Christian groups, and that is so damaging for our witness. Right, take your topic, like politics, economics, immigration, border control, fiscal policy, wealth disparity, climate change, freedoms, liberty, abortion, racism. I've seen Christians on both sides of these topics and they attack Christians for saying things like, you can't be a Christian and X, Y, Z. You can't be a Christian and believe X, Y, Z. Now you might be thinking, wait, Trent, you you, you talked about holiness and lawsuits and now you're talking about politics. And I thought holiness was just about a moral thing. Isn't it just a moral standing with God? And yes, holiness does encompass moral standing, but it is far more than that. Holiness is to be set apart, to be like God. Acting just like the world is not being holy. Acting just like the world is not being holy. And this, from what this text is telling us, uh, the way we interact with each other should not be like the world. The way we talk about politics to our, with our fellow Christians should not be like the world. We don't go on blast on Twitter or Facebook and, and take down other Christians because of their views on politics or whatever. We don't go touting and implying that our view is the only valid view. That's because that's what the world does. That's what the world does. We're on the same team. We're all on the same mission to bring glory to God with all of our lives and to make, gospel, to make disciples of all the nations. The war that we should be fighting is not inside the church, but it's the war for the souls of the unreached out there. We must fight the urge to be like our culture because no one is going to pay attention to Christianity if we just live and act the same way as they do. Our holiness affects our evangelism, brothers and sisters, way more than we think it does. We've got to check ourselves. We have to. Not just for ourselves, but for the sake of those who don't know Jesus. Now, for some of us, we might be, th- this is a sobering message. Like, you might be thinking, man, 
I tear down Christians in my private conversations all the time. Or you might think, I gossip like non-Christians do. Or I tear down belittle Christians just like the world does. But Paul has a warning for all of us, as he did for the Corinthians. And it says this in verse 9 to 10. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, as stern as this warning is, don't get it twisted, this warning is actually for our good as Christians. Paul is warning the Corinthian church, do not be deceived. If you have a pattern of behavior that looks like the world and you say you're a Christian, well, it doesn't make you, just because you say you're a Christian doesn't make you one. If it looks like a duck, it swims like a duck, and it quacks like a duck, then it's, it's a duck. It's probably a duck. <laughs> That's why he goes on to say, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters no adulterers, no men, no men who have sex with men, or thieves, or greedy, or drunkards, or slanderers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is by no means an exhaustive list. But for the Corinthian church, they were plagued by these issues. They looked just like the world. And he's warning them that if they are living in this way, in unrepentance, that's the key here, in unrepentance, it probably indicates that they don't know God. What does this mean, Trent? If I do these things, then does that mean I'm not a Christian? Is that what you're saying? Well, let's keep reading in verse 11. It says this. And that is why some of you were. That is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Which leads me to our final point today. That Paul calls us to know whose we are. Paul importantly tells them that some of the Corinthian church, some of the Corinthians were that. Past tense, were. That was their old life. But now, Paul reminds them of their true identity. He reminds them if they've accepted Jesus, this is who you are. They were washed, they were sanctified, and they were justified. They were washed, their guilty stain of sin and shame has been washed away by the blood of Jesus. They were sanctified in the sense that God set them apart for his purposes to grow and to change and to be like Jesus. And they were justified that before God they had been declared as righteous and perfect and right standing with him. Why does Paul remind them of this truth? If the Corinthians had truly accepted the grace that Jesus had afforded to them, knowing these things, knowing these sins doesn't just remind them of who they are, but what it does is it drives them to realize that none of this, none of this standing with God is their doing. To be God in God's family is that's purely a gift. It is purely a gift of grace. You cannot do anything to achieve it. You cannot do anything to earn it. And that's the same with us. We need to be reminded of this truth day in and day out. We need to be reminded of this truth, that we need to be reminded of who we belong to. We need to be reminded of whose we are, because that's not our own doing. As Christians, we don't belong to the world. We belong to God. 
And the only way we actually change is to realize that, is to live in realization of that, where we realize what it means for God to wash us, to sanctify us, to justify us, when we realize the magnitude of what God has done for us, that he gave us his only begotten son of infinite value, when we realize that God has given us his Holy Spirit to help us do the impossible task of living a holy life, that should drive us to our knees in worship, praise, and adoration. That should inspire us to live holy lives for God, right? We can only do that in realization of all God has done for us. Now, for some of us, we understand, yes, I know, I know, I know, grace has saved us, blah, 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 but I struggle to live like God tells me to, Tran. I want to do it, but it's, it's really hard. I, I get that struggle. I was once that person too. Like you, you feel like you're trying with all your might to live a holy life with all your white, like white-knuckled like might, but you feel like you're stuck in your own ways, in your old ways. But friends, if we want to live a life that is pleasing to God, we've got to keep our eyes off ourselves and on above. We need to remind ourselves, like Paul has reminded us, of the, mass, of the massive gift that God has given us. And that's Jesus. The problem with the Corinthians was that their heart was full of pride and arrogance. And that heart of pride and arrogance can flow into thinking that we can change ourselves on our own. We shouldn't make that same mistake. Because in reality, we can't change on our own. But when we look to Jesus, God changes us. When we look, when we, by his spirit, God changes us. When we look at his word, God changes us. So brothers and sisters, if you are struggling this morning to love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're struggling to be holy like he has called you to be holy, then the answer is to look at how much Christ has loved you and be consumed be, consumed that, be so consumed that it overflows into every crevice of your life. Be so consumed by the love of Jesus that you begin to walk like him, talk like him, act like him, love like him. So as we close this morning, as the band comes up, despite whatever conflicts or issues you may be having with people, especially with the people of God, let's actually be God's people Let's actually be holy people who are in this world and not just act like them. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who can change us to live and love like him, the one who binds us together as his family. Let's do this for his glory, for our joy, and for the salvation of many. While we pray together. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gift of Jesus. We thank you for the love that's been shown to us through him. We thank you for your undeserving grace, mercy, and kindness. We're thankful, but at times we don't know how to live holy lives. We, we admit that. Help us to live in gratefulness to you. 
to live in a way that says that we are not our own, that we belong to you. Help us to love each other as you have loved us first. And that when the world sees that, that they are attracted to you. Spirit, convict us. Point us to the cross of Jesus. Help us heal our conflicts. Help us to live in unity for the sake of the gospel. We're not deserving to be called your children. We are so far from being holy, but you've called us spotless and blameless because of your son. Jesus, help us to be holy. Help us to be like you, for you are holy. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.